I'm excited that we are kicking off this season. As Cynthia said, uh, we're beginning Advent, and yesterday officially began the Advent season. And uh, Advent, the, the word Advent, we're going to take a look at it here in a few moments, but it really means the uh, awaiting or arrival or in anticipation of that. And it's interesting because when we have something to wait on, in general, when we have something to wait on as human beings, um, we really don't like it, do we? Even if the thing that we're waiting on, we know at the end of the waiting, it's going to be a good thing. If you are a, a high school senior and you've sent off all your applications, you wait for that acceptance letter, don't you? And there's great anticipation in terms of the waiting. It's, it's the waiting that makes that thing at the end of that really that much sweeter. I mean, you get that acceptance letter. Oh, man, I got in. I'm going to my school. I'm going to my college. There's waiting for a check to come through on a big deal that you got if you're a businessman or a businesswoman, and you wait, and the waiting makes it that much sweeter. We can wait, and the anticipation of waiting makes whatever it is so much greater. You know, it's interesting in a movie, the thrill or the, the suspense is what, um, it's the waiting that makes that so suspenseful and so exciting. I was waiting last night on the edge of my couch when my University of Georgia Bulldogs were at like the 10-yard line and a pass went to that receiver and he caught it. And they lost the SEC championship and then Alabama won. And so um, if you're an Alabama fan, don't talk to me today. No, there, we, we wait on so many things, but really when it comes right down to it, we don't like to wait, do we? We don't like to wait. But you know, it's interesting. From the time that we're kids, all growing up, Christmas is all about waiting, isn't it? I mean, you get the tree up or you see a tree somewhere and there's presents and what do you have to do? You wait. You wait until Christmas. You have to wait. In our house, and I'm sure all of you have stories of waiting, in our house, um, it was interesting because it, it was um, waiting that caused some, some tension between me and my sister and, and my family. When I, when I was about six years old, um, my sister was three. She's three years younger than me. My mom and dad insisted on creating a tradition at Christmas and, and here was our tradition by the time I, I you know, was about six years old or so. Um, we were the type of family that celebrated Christmas, and we opened the presents on Christmas morning. And so we would run in, and my grandparents were usually there. My parents are early risers, and so they were up way before us. And so there's usually food and cider or hot chocolate or whatever. And my grandparents were there, my parents, and the presents around the tree and that sort of thing. It was just a, a great scene. But when I was six, they insisted that we do something different, that we start a new tradition. And here was the tradition. Every Christmas morning, we would wake up and we would go in, and before we opened the first present that morning, my dad thought it would be a great idea for the kids to do a dramatic reading of Matthew chapter 2. Yeah. Okay, now, Mom and Dad, if you're listening on our podcast, I love you. Um, but anyway, that was, that was excruciating for a six-year-old, and I'm sure it was excruciating for my three-year-old little sister. And we did that for like 10 years. I mean, I was a t well into my teens before Dad was finally like, all right, we're not going to do that anymore. But it was terrible. It wasn't the 364 days before Christmas. It wasn't the 30 days before Christmas that were so dramatic for us. It wasn't the night before Christmas that was so dramatic. It was the 10 or 15 minutes that we had to put into reading Matthew 2, and our presents were right there. They were right there. 
waiting for us to open. And we as humans, we just don't like to wait, even if we know that whatever's on the other side of that period of waiting is good, we still struggle with it, don't we? We still struggle with it, even if we know it's good. Well, what we started yesterday in the church tradition is called Advent. And that word means arrival. And I don't know about you, but when someone comes to our house and we are expecting their arrival, there's a great anticipation of that. We clean up a little bit more. We organize a little bit more. We get prepared for them to come. And so there's an anticipation. And so we're calling this series Anticipate as we talk about how the world waited on God to send his son. But I don't want you to miss this as a theme through all of this series. The Advent season is not just a season to look back and reflect on God sending the Christ child to earth to redeem mankind. It's as much about that as it is looking forward into the future about his next arrival and about his second coming. Because there's so much promise to be fulfilled in the future of Christ coming again. Before we dive in today, would you join me in a word of prayer? Father God, I pray that you would just guide us into truth and wisdom, that your Holy Spirit would just reveal what needs to be revealed from your word. God, that our hearts would be pierced in areas where you know that we need to be pierced. And Father God, I pray in the strong name of Jesus that we would respond, that we would obey, and that we would change as a result of what you have to say to each one of us here this morning. Father, as we consider the arrival of your son so many years ago, and we consider the second arrival of you coming back to this earth, God, I pray that you would help us to anticipate and to be prepared and to look forward but God, most of all, where we have anxiety about the future, I pray that we would place our hope because your promises that are fulfilled in the past are an indication of the promises you're going to fill in the future. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Over the course of these next four weeks, we're going to consider, first of all, today, anticipation of the promise. We're going to be talking about what it means to anticipate the king, because that's what Jesus came to do. Uh, he, he is our king. And then we're going to talk about anticipating the prophecy, and then anticipating the coming of God, the second coming of God. It's interesting, when we look at the, um, the narrative of, of humans and God, it's an interesting narrative. It's an interesting story. And sometimes we forget that, this, that we are a part, that each one of you are a part of the story of God and man. And we saw in the ornament that uh, God was the creator. It's one of the promises that he has created this world and that he really is the ruler of this world. Well, in the God-man narrative, there have been many promises. We took a look at a few of them today. There's the promise that God gave that he would never have a catastrophic, catastrophic flood destroy the earth ever again. There were some specific promises, some promises that he made with the nation of Israel, with the Jewish people. He promised that, um, that he would save the world through their line. He promised that they would be blessed and be a blessing. And then he promised that he would redeem mankind through the gift of a savior. And many of those promises we celebrate at Christmas through the person of Jesus Christ 
are already fulfilled, but there are many of them that are going to be fulfilled in the years to come. Well, about 600 years before the birth of Jesus Christ, there was a prophet, a man named Jeremiah. And Jeremiah was an interesting man because just like all other prophets, his job was to watch out for the nation of Israel, to watch out for the Jewish people. That's the the word prophet means watchman. And so they would symbolically and spiritually watch out for what was to come in the nation of Israel. And so the prophet Jeremiah um, began to tell the nation of Israel that there was something coming that they needed to be warned of. And so today, this morning, I want to take as our main text this morning, Jeremiah 33, verses 14 through 16. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If you don't, the words will be on the screen this morning. But in doing so, I want to kind of lead you through just a very quick history of who Jeremiah was and what he is saying to the nation of Israel, because it doesn't just have meaning for thousands of years ago. It has very specific meaning for us today. Jeremiah was very important to the nation of Israel because he was specifically prophesying, he was specifically warning the nation of Israel that there was going to be a king that would come out of Babylon by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, and that this king would take captive the whole Jewish nation. And so if you as a Jewish person back then read the first 29 chapters of Jeremiah, um, it was a clear warning that something terrible is going to happen in the future. But then in chapter 30, Jeremiah begins to tell the nation of Israel, this is all going to happen and you need to be warned, but there is a day coming in the future where there's going to be peace and where everything is going to be justified and everything is going to be redeemed. And that was Jeremiah's role. That was his job was to warn the Jewish people of this imminent or distant danger that was once coming. But it was also to reassure them that it would be for a while and that one day things would take place to resolve all of these problems that cropped up. He begins to tell them that one day these certain things would happen. In fact, we see 16 different times in the book of Jeremiah he uses the phrase one day. So he's very much talking about the days that are coming. Take a look this morning as he gives the Jewish people hope here in Jeremiah chapter 33, 14 through 16. You can follow along with me as I read out loud. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good promise I made to the people of Israel and Judah. Now, let me just stop there for a moment, just give you a brief history. You don't have to understand everything about this. But in that day and age, as a result of some mistakes, some disobedience that Solomon's son had made, uh, uh, because of that, the whole Jewish race had broken up into two parts, or it essentially been a split, and there was Judah and Israel, and they made up the Jewish race. So, so uh, uh, here God is speaking through the prophet Jeremiah to both groups. There were times he spoke to Israel specifically, and times he spoke to Judah specifically, but he's speaking to both of them right here. Verse 15, in those days, in the days that are coming, and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it, talking about the city of Jerusalem, will be called the Lord our righteous Savior. 
So Jeremiah has been warning Israel, and you'd be pretty depressed back then if you read uh, the book of Jeremiah up to chapter 29. It would be a depressing thing, and you'd go, man, I'm not sure if I want to be here. Can I move somewhere else, anywhere but here? And then he reassures them that there's a day coming that they need to anticipate that God is going to resolve things And it's interesting because in this passage, I think what he does is he says to the whole Jewish race, I know, I know, I know that there is strife. I know that your enemies have attacked you over and over and over and over again, but there's a day coming where there will be peace. Does it sound familiar to you? At least the strife part, at least the conflict part. You see, I think hidden in this prophecy that Jeremiah gave to the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, all the way back thousands of years ago, even 600 years before the birth of Christ, there's a promise that we as people in 2012 can cling on to, that can hold on to, and there's a way that we can anticipate the promises of God. Let's take a look at your notes this morning. The coming of Christ keeps these promises. I want to focus on just three. Oh, the coming of Christ... It it keeps so many promises, but I want to focus on these three, which I read from Jeremiah chapter 33. The first of this is that peace will one day replace strife. The coming of Christ keeps the promise that one day peace will replace strife. How many of you have watched the news in the last week? Oh, come on please. There's more of you informed than this. How many of you have watched the news in the last week or read it or any other? Okay, there we go. That's much better. Thank you. Does peace define what's going on in the world today? No, not even close. I mean, if it were, if it were like 80% better, peace would still not describe what is going on in the world today, would it? And specifically, what we're watching in the Middle East, and this isn't a message specifically on this kind of prophecy, but there is There is strife that is going on in this same land that God was speaking to 2,600 years ago that is still going on to this day. I'll be 40 years old this March, and in my 40 years, there have been multiple dozens and dozens and dozens of peace treaties, of peace processes to try to bring peace in Israel and to try to bring peace between specifically the Palestinians and Israel. And you know how many times it's lasted? None. None. We have to be real and look at the fact that peace does not define our world. It doesn't define the world there. It didn't define the world then. And it won't define our world in the near future. But this didn't affect just Israel. It didn't just affect the Jewish people. And it doesn't today. Think about our world specifically. In 2001, we were attacked and we went to war and We've been at two wars specifically since 2001, and we've lost many, many, many people due to war here, right here in America. We've lost many, some of you have lost friends, some of you have lost loved ones, and we've lost those because peace is elusive to the world. Look at, to, to our border in the south, down in Mexico. Since 2006, I heard a report this week, since 2006, there have been nearly Please grasp the, the, the weight of this. Nearly 50,000 people have died since 2006 in the country that borders the United States of America because of a conflict over what? Drugs. 
over drugs. Here in our world, here in America, we have conflicts, we have shootings, we have stabbings. People are dying because there is conflict in the world and no one, please catch this, I'll talk about it in a minute, no one can resolve that conflict other than Jesus Christ. You need to hear me though today. Those of you who have anxiety, and I understand this about the conflict that exists in the world, it can make you depressed, it can make you anxious. There is a day coming when peace will come to this world, but it is only through the person of Jesus Christ. It is only through the person of Jesus Christ. Isaiah chapter nine says this, for to us a child is born, for to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of what? Peace. Prince of Peace. Jesus is the one that can bring peace to our world that is filled with strife. But here's the problem. Here's the problem, even with those of us who call ourselves Christ followers, is that we view the world in three segments. We kind of view our our history in three segments. Like, there was the time that Jesus was born, and that's one. And then there was the time that he died, and he went to heaven, and, and then there's that. And then there's the time that he's coming again, and we fall somewhere in the middle. What would help us to understand and anticipate the promises of God to bring peace is viewing all of history from the time that the Christ child came to this earth. It is the the age, it's the messianic age, it's the time that we live in and the, the promise is gonna be completed sometime in the future. And so if we view the world that way, it will help our anxiety, it will help us to put our faith and our trust in who God is and what he has done if we focus on what he's done in the past. But don't consider just the world. Consider your own life for a moment. Consider your own life. If I said to you, um, is your life 100% completely defined by peace? Would any of you be able to raise your hands? Honestly. I mean, maybe you think it's peaceful. Maybe it's peaceful right now. Maybe during the next day, it's peaceful you know, the kids are gone and, you know, your husband's gone on a business trip and so you have a moment of peace. (laughs) But that peace ends, doesn't it? That peace ends. And even in our own lives, even with our own uh, situations, there's strife, there's conflict, there's a lack of peace. And sometimes that lack of peace is forced upon us. Sometimes that strife and that conflict is forced upon us. There's no doubt about that. But sometimes we create it ourselves, don't we? Sometimes we create that strife ourselves. The nation of Israel did, the Jewish people did. They created much of the strife that was put upon them themselves and God allowed them to go through the consequences of that so that they could learn something, so they could draw themselves closer to him and God may very well do the same thing with you. If you're in here today and your world is full of strife and full of conflict because of a choice that you've made, then perhaps, maybe, God is going to allow you to journey through that. He'll get you to the other side, but maybe he'll allow you to journey through that so you can learn a few lessons along the way. That's what had to happen with the nation of Israel. If you really study the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, and their relationship with God, it was a series, it went like this. God would speak, his word was clear, it was called the law. They had to obey the law, and what they would do is they would hear the law, they would obey the law, they would disobey the law, and they would repent. They would hear the law, they would obey the law, 
they would disobey the law and they would repent again. And they would hear the law and they would disobey the law and they, come on, you can say it with me, they would repent again and then they would do it all over again. Does anyone have children? They, we know how this is, right parents? This is the way it goes. You give them a directive, they obey you for a while, they disobey you, and then hopefully they repent. It's not just that way with Jewish history, it's that way with us. That's how we interact with God, we do the same thing. We hear from God, we understand what he's saying, we obey for a little while, and then we disobey. And then we repent and we start the process all over again. Jeremiah gives us a glimpse into how he deals with not just the Jewish people, but with humanity in Jeremiah 30, verse 10. Take a look at this. He says, Then fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, nor be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you far away, I want you to catch that word, and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have quiet and ease, and none shall make him afraid. What Jeremiah is saying to the nation of Israel here is, hey guys, y'all have messed this up with God and you have to live with the consequences and God will save your offspring at a later time, at a later date. And he's saying the same thing to us. There are consequences to our actions, strife, conflict may be some of those consequences and we may, we may have to make the journey through those consequences before God saves us. He uses two words there, far away and offspring, which gives us the idea that he's gonna save the nation of Israel. He's just not gonna do it necessarily on their time and in their way. And that's the point I want you to hear this morning under this first one is, is that God's promise is to lead us through our problems, not out of them. God's promise is to lead us through our problems, not out of them. The second thing that we can learn the coming of, that the coming of Christ keeps the promises is this promise that justice will one day replace prejudice. Justice will one day replace prejudice. Jeremiah 33, 15 says something very interesting. We read it earlier. I want you to take a look at it again. He says to the nation of Israel, in those days at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line and he will do what is what? Just, say it with me again, he will do what is just and right in the land. Do you know of any king, any leader, any time in the history, of those of you who have studied world history, and any time in our human history who has ever been completely just and completely righteous? Which if you take a look at different translations, it may say justice and righteousness. You see, we can know that justice will one day replace prejudice. In fact, that's exactly what the prophet Jeremiah was trying to communicate to the nation of Israel. Hey, this whole race of people, this whole group of people called the Babylonians, they're gonna come in, they're gonna come in and King Nebuchadnezzar is gonna take over. You guys are gonna be under captivity for all of this time. And the reason that that conflict is gonna happen is because of prejudice. It's because a king wants control over a people. And that idea has been echoed all throughout human history, hasn't it? Prejudice exists everywhere. Well, what God is saying through the prophet Jeremiah is there is going to be a day when prejudice will end and justice will be had for everyone. 
There are some of you who are in here today and you have been the victim of prejudice. It may be the way you look, how you talk. It may be who you are. It may be the values that you stand for and you've had people that have been prejudiced against you. God says there's a day coming not only when complete peace is gonna come to the world, but complete justice is gonna come to the world as well. He's gonna take the inequities and he's gonna make them right. He's gonna take the things that, are, that were uh, uh, completely wrong and he's gonna make them right. Galatians 3.28, Paul speaking to the churches in Galatia, and he says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither, neither male nor female, for you all are one in Christ Jesus. That's what the future looks like. And God's promises that we are unified under the authority of, of Christ and Christ alone, that we are unified under the authority of Christ and Christ alone. And finally, the coming of Christ keeps this third promise. Righteousness will one day replace evil. Righteousness will one day replace evil. Paul says this to the church in Corinth. He says, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. All I want to focus on this morning is that one word, righteousness. And because of him, who you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness. Please hear me on this. There will be leaders. There will be kings. There will be politicians. There will even be, yes, I'm sorry to say, pastors and religious leaders that will rise up in the days to come that will say, I can offer you righteousness. What I say, my platform, believe in it, it's right. Does that sound familiar? We just came out of an election. <laughs> we saw this on TV for months and months and months and every four years or really every two years and sometimes every year we see it that people say, I am right. I'm gonna bring righteousness to you. And we can't believe it 100% from anyone because no one, the Bible says, no one is righteous, not even one. The only one who's righteous is Jesus Christ. He's the only one who's gonna resolve what is unjust and he's gonna stamp out what is evil because he is perfect and he is right. And as a result of what Paul is saying, we should strive to live for him. We shouldn't strive for perfection. There are some of you in here today who think that you can provide righteousness for yourself. Well, if I just do good enough, then I can be righteous too. Or if I just do all of these good things that correct all the wrong things that I've done, then I can make up for it. Some of you have come out of backgrounds. I came out of a similar background to that. Sometimes we think that we can be righteous. I'm here to tell you that God's promise, God's promise of righteousness is dependent upon our repentance, not our perfection. We can't be perfect enough to be completely righteous. We have to rely on the person of Jesus Christ to do that. So we anticipate the promise of God, the promise that he would send a savior, and that's what we celebrate at Christmas. He sent Jesus, not as a king, like the nation of Israel expected, and we'll talk about that king thing next week, because he will become king. But he didn't send him as a king, he sent him as a baby, as a lowly baby, a child in a manger in a farmhouse. That's the way God wanted to redeem mankind. But you know what? We have to cling and hold on to the promise of the future. I want to end by talking about that today. First Thessalonians, Paul says this in First Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. He says, for the Lord himself 
will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together. I want you to catch that. We'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. If we believe God's promises are true in the past, then we can believe that he will resolve conflict, that he will resolve injustice, and that he will resolve what is evil. And one day, we are going to be united together with him. That's anticipating the promises of God. And the bottom line is God's promise is that one day we will be united with Christ. We'll be united with Christ. So what do we do? How do we act? Well, unlike I did when I was six years old, we should act with patience. And it may be difficult because we don't know what the future holds. But you know what? We know that he is in control of the future. And so we act with patience. James 5, 7, and 8 says this, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your heart, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. We'll be talking more about this in the weeks to come, but I want you to get honest for a moment. I want you to get really honest for a moment with yourself and with God. How many of you out there really, really worry about the future? When you read the newspaper, when you get on the internet, when you watch TV, when you watch the news, how many of you, when you hear what's going on, have an incredible amount of anxiety? I'm right there with you. I get that. I get that. But how many of you are in anxious, not just about the, the situation the world is in, but how many of you are anxious about your own strife in your own life? I'm sure there are some of you who are in here today and you are so anxious, maybe even depressed about what's going on in your life. You need to cling and hold on solidly to the promises that God sent his son Jesus to die a brutal death and that one day we're going to be united with him. You know, at Christmas time, we, um, we use a word, we use a name for Jesus. We're going to sing about it here in a few minutes. And I wish it was a word that we use for Jesus all throughout the year. Maybe we should try that. And the word is Emmanuel. And that's a Hebrew word that literally means God with us. I want you to say that with me. God with us. It doesn't matter what kind of anxiety you have. It doesn't matter what kind of worry you have. It doesn't matter what kind of depression you have. God can be with you if you will accept his promise. Will you pray with me this morning? God, it's not easy for us as humans to, um, to wait and be patient. But God, I pray as we anticipate not only your, um, as we reflect and anticipate your arrival into the world, um, God, I pray that you would help us to be patient as we wait for you to resolve the world in the future. And God, I pray for those who are in here today who would admit to you that they have anxiety and worry about the future. If you're in here this morning and with every head bowed and every eye closed, if you would just say, man, I, I struggle with worry and anxiety about the future, I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand. Just raise your hand. I'm raising mine, by the way. I struggle with this. Dozens and dozens and dozens. Father God, I pray that you would help us to hold 
firmly, hold strong to the promise that we can anticipate that you're going to be faithful to your promises and that you're going to resolve our mess, you're going to resolve the mess of the world one day. We'll talk more about that in the coming weeks. But God, I pray that you would help us to be resolute, that we'd be faithful in our lives, and as James says, that we would be patient. Help us to prepare in that way for your future arrival. And God, I pray for those who may be in here today and they have never asked you to be their Savior. They've never said yes to that promise. Your word says if, you would, if we would confess with our mouth and believe in our hearts that you rose again from the dead, your word says that we will be saved. And I pray for those who may be in here this morning and they've never done that, Father. I pray that December 2nd, 2012 is their day of salvation. That they can have a hope for the future. They can have a hope for what may come, whether it's their death or whether it's you returning. That they can have a hope that they'll be with you because they said yes to you one day. And if you're in here this morning and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, I would be remiss if I didn't give you the opportunity to do that. It's the most important decision that you can ever make in life because it's a decision about where you spend eternity. I'm going to pray a prayer here in a moment, and if you want to ask Jesus to be your Savior here this morning, you just pray that prayer quietly in your heart. The prayer goes like this. God, thank you for loving me. Thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross so that I can be saved. Today, I confess of my sins and I ask you, Jesus, to be my Savior. If you prayed that prayer here this morning, and just in the quietness and the darkness of this room, I'm just going to ask you to simply raise your hand. Anyone in here this morning who prayed that prayer? Over to my right over here, your left. Anyone here this morning? In the center of the room, over on my left. Anyone pray that prayer this morning? Father God, you are Emmanuel. You are God with us. Thank you so much for sending Jesus to this earth. Thank you for the way that you came. Thank you for the way that you died. And thank you that you did it because you wanted to reestablish a relationship between God and man. Thank you for the narrative, God. You are Emmanuel, God with us. And we give you praise and glory for that today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.